Meister Eckhart once said that the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. Perhaps there's no greater description of Christian non-duality than this. Non-duality, it's an overlapping of being. We discover a mysterious oneness where we used to only think that a two-ness existed or a duality existed. We used to think, before being enlightened to non-dualistic consciousness, we used to think that God is up there somewhere and I am down here. But then we realized, like St. Paul said, that you are already seated in the heavenly realm. So you are already up there where God is. And Paul also said that Christ is in you that your body is a temple for the divine. So God is also down here already within you. So yes, God is up there and you are down here, but God is also down here within you and you are also up there within heaven. Non-duality, folks. (laughs) Or as Thich Nhat Hanh called it, interbeing. Non-duality is interbeing. Your being is always interbeing. Your being is intertwined with all things. You don't exist in a vacuum as an isolated entity. No, your very existence, your very being, is a complex tapestry of interwoven relationships. Particles, molecules, atoms, organs, social relationships, planetary relationships, cosmic relationships, and heavenly relationships. All of it, it all comes together at the crossroads that is you. <laughs> to make you into the you that you are in all of your you-iness. <laughs> well, at this point in the series, we've gotten pretty deep into it. I feel like it's necessary to revisit this kind of important notion of non-duality from a Christian perspective. Because whenever we say that we're gathering around the practice of non-duality in our services, in our liturgy, We are not saying that we are a conglomeration of isolated individuals coming together to unite ourselves emotionally or spiritually around a common practice or sentiment. No. What we're saying is that during the liturgy, the very notion of the individual dissolves. In the liturgy, there really is no such thing as the self. We go from being an individual body, having an individual body, being an individual person, we go from that to the discovery that we are all members of a larger body, the body of Christ. I am just one part of the many, but also that many, it makes me who I am and what I am. You discover in the liturgy, if you have the eyes to see, you discover that the line between you and other people, that line dissolves. The line between you and God, it dissolves. The line between you and the entire universe dissolves. Now, an important point, because I anticipate pushback, because I've received it, (laughs) we're not promoting the notion of pantheism here. No, we Episcopalians, we are panentheists, or at least we should be. At least we're, we're getting there, slowly but surely. 
So we're not saying that God is synonymous with everything. We aren't pantheists. Rather, God is in all things, pan-in-theism. And just as God is in all things and all things are in God, we discover that somehow we too were also mysteriously in all things, and all things are mysteriously in us. Through the liturgy, through the mysticism of the liturgy, we discover interbeing. That all of existence somehow overlaps at the crossroads of the human self. So in the liturgy, the rituals, all of it, we're not creating a unity where one did not exist beforehand. No, (laughs) we are acknowledging the unity that has always existed before us. This unity that we're already woven into. The Eucharist, it's a microcosm of the macrocosm that is all of reality. With all of this said, this important reminder of what non-duality is and what it isn't, let's move on to our next segment of the liturgy, our next section of the liturgy. So a few weeks ago, uh, apologies, it's taken me so long to get to another episode. I just kind of got bored of writing, (laughs) but I'm finally past that now. But a few weeks ago, we stopped at the prayers of the people. And the week before that was the creed. So creed, prayers of the people. Now this week, we're focusing on two parts of the liturgy the peace or the passing of the peace and the offertory, which is most like, you know, most people know it as the offering time of the offering where the, the plates are passed through the sanctuary. So we'll focus on the peace first. Most people I think are pretty familiar with the passing of the peace, right? The priest or the minister says the peace of the Lord be always with you. And the congregation responds with something like this and also with you. In many churches, if not most, the passing of the peace, it occurs right after the confession of sin. Now, I am omitting the confession of sin in this series uh, because personally, uh, truth-telling time, I don't believe that the confession should have any place at all whatsoever in the Eucharistic liturgy on Sunday mornings. It's not that there isn't a time or place for confessing, confessing our sins, right? It's just that If there is such a time and place for it, it's more appropriate in the daily office or morning or evening prayer or compline, right? Or a midweek Eucharistic liturgy. The reason I feel this way, it's twofold. On the one hand, I agree with St. Basil the Great whenever he highlighted hundreds of years ago the fact that Sunday is the day of resurrection, a day of celebration. We shouldn't kneel in shame or brokenness, but we should stand upright in exuberant joy. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday, if you didn't know that. (laughs) Alleluia, alleluia. (laughs) And because of this, there's no need, liturgically, mystically, metaphorically, to confess your sins. That's not what this day or this liturgy is about. What need is there to confess when you've already been risen in Christ, resurrected in Christ? Redemption has come already, folks. (laughs) That's what the Eucharist is about. However, like this isn't a hill that I'm willing to die on. Not yet, at least. Probably someday I'll be willing to die on it. I'm getting pretty close to it. The thing is, most people, they're accustomed to confessing their sins on Sunday mornings. They like it for some reason. 
So I've opted to meet my parish halfway. I've had, I've experimented with this. I've gone long seasons where I've just omitted the confession. And sure enough, like somebody taps me on the shoulder <laughs> and wonders what it is that I'm doing with their liturgy, right? <laughs> uh, they miss confessing their sins. So I've decided to meet my parish halfway. We just put the confession in mainly during penitential seasons like Lent or Advent. And we remove it for the rest of the year. Lent and Advent, these are seasons where we're meant to think more about our brokenness and our finiteness and our sinfulness, right? Um, But yeah, it's kind of appropriate there, I guess. But yeah, I still don't like it. But probably the more important reason as to why I dislike having the confession of sin in the liturgy on Sunday mornings at any point in the year, it's that the confession completely disrupts the flow of the liturgy and the message that the actions themselves are trying to communicate to us. So traditionally, if you're not familiar, the confession of sin is said right after the prayers of the people. So that we pray for the whole world, and then everybody gets on their knees and confesses how wretched they are. (laughs) Then after the confession, the priest gets up and says, The peace of the Lord be always with you, and the peace is passed throughout the room. So because of this kind of flow, most people generally attach the peace to the confession. So the idea is that, well, now that I've confessed my sins, God now extends his peace to me. Isn't that dandy? Isn't that lovely? (laughs) But this isn't what the peace is about. The peace is not like the, the period at the end of the confession of sin, right? It's not a response to the confession of sin. And the fact that the peace can exist with or without the confession of sin prefacing it, that we can pass the peace without having to first confess our sins, this should tell us something, that the peace has nothing whatsoever to do with the confession. So the peace is not about God forgiving you. It's about something else, something much bigger, actually. So if we were to remove the confession of sin from the service entirely, think about how the service would flow then. So we would go from, we say, the creed, uh, this story that we're participating in, as we talked about a few weeks ago, several weeks ago now, I guess, and we go to praying for the needs of the whole world, uniting ourselves with the whole world in prayer and praying for the entire world. And in in these prayers, we're basically asking, I mean, what are we asking? We're asking God to pour out his peace, his shalom, his kingdom into the entire world. And if we remove the confession of sin, we then would immediately go into directly passing the peace, right? So we ask God to pour out his peace on the world, essentially, whenever we pray for the world and the prayers of the people, then we would go straight into passing the peace throughout the sanctuary. Again, remember the imagery from several episodes ago, one of the first episodes, whenever it comes to the sanctuary space and the movement through that space. Again, the altar area is heaven, and the area with the pews, that is the earth. So after we're done praying for God's peace to bust loose into our world and to the earth, the priest or the person who is the central icon of the divine gets up and proclaims, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And then that peace moves throughout the pews. 
It moves from the altar, the area symbolizing the Holy of Holies, the area symbolizing heaven, and it moves down to the pews, the area that represents the whole world. In other words, the passing of the peace, it's an acknowledgement that God is already answering our prayers for the world, that we just prayed, that his peace is already coursing through the veins of the entire cosmos, just as the peace is verbally being passed through the entire sanctuary. That's the imagery. (laughs) That's the symbolism. And furthermore, and an important note, everything that is happening in our service, it's not merely just a symbol of this heavenly action. No, the liturgy actually actualizes it in a very real way. There is no duality between what is happening in our sanctuary and what is happening in the sanctuary that is the world. So whenever you're passing the peace, God's peace is being passed through the whole planet through the whole universe even. And when you're passing the peace, just know it's not your own peace that you're passing. It is Christ's peace. The peace of the Lord or the peace of Christ be always with you. It's not the peace of some random guy named Steve. The peace of Steve be always with you and also with you. Who gives a crap about Steve? Well, probably you should, (laughs) but you get my point. It's not Steve's peace. It's not your peace that's being passed. It's Christ's peace that we are accepting, that we are internalizing, and that we are passing through the room, through the cosmos. We are one with this movement of Christ's peace. There is no duality between us and God's shalom in the moment. And when you're passing the peace, you're not simply wishing the best for the people around you. I mean, yeah, that too. But it's about so much more than that. In your very actions, in your very words, you are saying that God is already answering the prayers that we just prayed for our world. You are embodying God's peace, busting loose into our world. So let's kind of step back and have a panoramic view again of just this little section of the liturgy. So we said the creed a little bit ago, right? We've just finished praying the prayers of the people, and now the peace is being passed through the pews, a symbolic depiction of God's answer to our prayers spreading through the whole planet. Now we come to that next pivotal moment of the service, a pivotal moment that is inseparable from the moments that just preceded it. We've prayed, God has answered our prayers, and now we are offering something up to God in the offertory. But what is that something? What is it that we're actually offering up? The offertory, my friends, this is the part of the service where the collection plates get passed through the room. But the offertory, it's about so much more than just passing around some collection plates. It's about way more, so much more, than just collecting money to keep the bills paid and the priest fed. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> but it's, it's about more than just that, right? Uh, the offertory is, in fact, one of the richest symbolic actions of the entire service, in this priest's opinion. Yeah. So let's break it down 
into smaller bits so that we can kind of comprehend the scope and the beauty of this particular ritual in the liturgy. So in the offertory, you remember, most people are familiar with some sort of offertory. Every church passes around collection plates, right? So even if you're not Episcopalian or you're not a churchy person, you can probably visualize this with me. So in the offertory, there's a movement from the pews, right? It starts off in the pews. The money is collected <laughs> uh, from the people in the pews. And then that money, it makes its way, at least traditionally, and in our parish, it makes its way up to the altar. In other words, again, the imagery here, there's a movement from earth to heaven. Now remember, again, just before this, in the peace, there was a movement from the altar to the pews, from heaven to earth. But in the offertory, it's the reverse direction. We're giving our tithe. We're moving our tithe, not simply to the church in general, but we're moving it specifically to the transformative reality that is the altar. Unfortunately, a lot of this imagery is lost on us, in the, the full scope of this imagery at least, because the economic reality of modern times has really cheapened the symbolism of this part of the service quite a bit. So before there was such a thing as our common currency, before dollar bills and coins, people would literally bring the first fruits of their land to the temple or to the church. In some parts of the world today, this is still the case. I remember hearing a story from a missionary several years ago where during the offertory in a church in another country, the people did not give money because they didn't have any money. They gave the only currency they had, which was the fruits and vegetables from their gardens and farms. They gave the land, something from the land to the church during the offertory. This, my friends, this is how we need to think about the offertory. We're not giving something just from our checking accounts, but we are offering up something of the land in which we live, the land which we have worked in our own unique ways. The idea is that we're not simply offering up our money to God. No, money is nothing more than just a symbol here. We're offering up the land itself, the fruit of the land, the earth itself the very context that our work, our economy, is intimately bound up in. In other words, we are offering up Mother Earth herself and all of our involvement within her. And we are asking God to do what? To consecrate her with his spirit. So what we're putting into our offering plate as it comes by it's not just money. It's the planet. And the offering plate is processed up to the altar during the offertory hymn. So after it's been passed through the whole room, it goes up to the altar. Then the priest blesses the offering once it reaches the altar. Again, remember the imagery here. Through the priest, God is blessing Mother Earth as we have offered her up to him. Then what happens next? The offering goes from being money and offering plates to bread and wine upon the altar. This is the 
first transformation that occurs during the Eucharist. People probably don't pay much attention to the imagery when it's happening in a service on Sundays. They're probably focusing too much on what they're singing during the offertory hymn to recognize the transformation that's being taken place, the transformation that's being depicted, at least. So in other words, Mother Earth becomes bread and wine. The very bread and wine that will become the body and blood of Jesus Christ momentarily. In other words, by the end of the service, Jesus incarnates all of Mother Earth as we have offered her up to him. God Eucharistizes, that's a great word, Eucharistizes. I just, I don't know if I invented that. I'm sure somebody else has uh, used that word before, but I'm going to use it now. God Eucharistizes the entire world. What's happening up on the altar, we're saying, is happening in the entire cosmos. So the bread and wine, they're not just bread and wine. They are symbols of the entire universe. And for those who have the eyes to see, they actually are the entire universe. You know how that song goes, he has the whole world in his hands? Yeah, so that's what God is doing through the priest as the priest elevates the host and the chalice every single Sunday. The priest's hands, priest's hands are God's hands. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of Thich Nhat Hanh's Living Buddha, Living Christ, which, by the way, is an epic book. If you've never read that book, hit pause. Seriously, hit pause right now. <laughs> Get on the interwebs and read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest that book. It's epic. But anyways, in Living Buddha, Living Christ... Thich Nhat Hanh says that each time we receive the Eucharist, we touch the sun, the clouds, the earth, and everything in the cosmos. We touch life, and we touch the kingdom of God. <laughs> right after he says this, he has a humorous little line that I love. He says that when he asked Cardinal Jean Danilou, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that, uh, a major Roman Catholic figure years ago, whether or not the Eucharist could be understood in this way, <laughs> the cardinal said yes. <laughs> so this is basically Thich Nhat Hanh's way of saying, take that, you Christian fundamentalists. <laughs> this cardinal agrees with me. <laughs> yeah. And recently, a debate broke out during one of the committee meetings that several of my parishioners and myself are a part of for the diocese. We're on the Creation Care Committee for the Diocese of Milwaukee. And basically on this committee, we're trying to figure out how we Episcopalians can stop treating Mother Earth like, well, crap, right? We're trying to figure out how we specifically as an Episcopal people can live more harmoniously with Mother Earth um, and do our part to make the world a better place, right, in this particular way. Well, a few of my parishioners naturally, <laughs> in writing up a mission statement, they said something along the lines of, we should honor and respect the entire creation because the entire creation is the body of Christ. Well, one person in particular on this committee did not like this line one bit. The church is the body of Christ, not the whole planet, they said. I was surprised that in reaction to this person, no one said that the bread and wine are the body of Christ. But anyways, yeah, that's a whole other thing. 
Yeah, more evangelical-leaning Episcopalians will say that the people are the body of Christ, and the more traditional Catholic-leaning Episcopalians will say that the consecrated bread and wine, that's the body of Christ. But this, again, my friends, is a perfect example of dualistic thinking. The enlightened Episcopalian will say that it's all the body of Christ. It's not an either-or, but a both-and type of situation, because the bread and wine are the whole cosmos, offered up to God. So people are the body of Christ. The bread and wine are the body of Christ. Yes, yes, yes. It's all the body of Christ. Jesus' incarnation, his body, is not limited to church membership or to a wafer or sweet red wine or white wine, whatever you guys do in your parishes, right? I mean, the ancient people knew this. The very idea of incarnation is already prefaced in the mysticism of the Hebrew temple. Philo and Josephus both said that the high priest wore robes that depicted the entire creation, Mother Earth. The high priest, this icon of Yahweh, clothed himself with the universe. And Jesus is our high priest, clothed in the creation. And church fathers like Origen agreed with this ancient Hebrew mystical insight. You can find him talking about it in his first principles book. And modern scholarship on Maximus the Confessor has proved that he said the same thing as well. Many of the church fathers looked at it this way. So in the offertory, the offertory is a response to God's shalom spreading itself out into every nook and cranny in the universe. But in this offertory, we're offering up to God every aspect of this world that we experience and everything that we're doing within it. And we're asking God to not only spread his peace through our world, but more importantly, we're asking God to consecrate it, to incarnate it, to make himself one with it. During the peace, God's presence comes down to us, but during the offertory, we elevate our whole reality up to God. So beautiful. So to sum up, I've said a lot (laughs) in this episode. Whenever you pass the peace, God is not only answering prayer, the prayers of the people, he's also passing his peace to others, to the whole world. In the act of passing the peace, we are declaring symbolically that God is moving through the whole world, just as our words of peace are echoing through the whole sanctuary. And this liturgical action is an icon of the grander movement of God through our universe. This liturgical action actually is God's movement through our universe. There's no duality between our actions and God's actions. God moves through the whole world through our peace. And furthermore, in the offertory, we are acknowledging that all duality between our world and God is undone, dissolved, We're acknowledging that God and Mother Earth share the reality of interbeing, non-duality. And we're asking through the offertory for God to fill our reality and every action of ours with his very presence. We're asking him to make everything, every aspect of Mother Earth, every facet of human reality as we experience it, into a sacrament of the divine for us. This is the very thing that happens in the next part of the liturgy, which we'll cover in our next segment.
Thank you for joining me and for listening. Peace be with you. Thank you.